Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss a classic piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I am Laura Robinson, and we are PhD students in New Testament studies at Duke University. This week we're discussing J. Lewis Martin's 1985 article, A Law Observant Mission to the Gentiles, The Background of Galatians. Ian, what is this article about? Okay, Martin is going to argue that in order to understand the argument of Galatians, you need to understand who Paul is arguing against. Scholars today recognize that Galatians, like most of Paul's letters, are highly occasional. He's not writing an abstract theological treatise, he's writing a letter to a specific church in a specific situation. And in order to understand Paul's arguments, Martin is arguing, you need to understand the way his opponents have argued, and specifically the way his opponents have read scripture. And Martin is going to argue later that actually some of Paul's arguments don't make sense unless you reconstruct the way Paul's opponents have read these texts. So we're going to introduce a new uh, a new technique in New Testament criticism to you guys this week, and this is the way in which Martin reconstructs what the opponents are arguing. This is called mirror reading. Mirror reading is a tool for reading Paul where we acknowledge that because we're reading Paul's letters, we're essentially just hearing one side of a phone call. We don't know what Paul is writing to or against because we don't we don't have those letters. So we have to uh, use our imaginations and our in good outside information to reconstruct what is happening in the specific church that Paul is writing to. The overall project is we're reconstructing Paul's opponents in Galatians through Paul's argument and seeing what he's arguing against. It's really important to note that Martin doesn't just see Paul arguing X and say his opponents must have argued not X. Wherever he reconstructs the position of Paul's interlocutors, uh, he looks for external information or independent evidence that this is in fact what the opponents taught. And so we're actually going to start with that as Martin starts with that, looking for independent sources for the existence, teaching, and character of Paul's opponents in Galatians. And this is a law-observant Christian mission to the Gentiles. That is, a group of Christian missionaries who are trying to convince pagans, Jews, etc., that in order to follow Jesus, you must observe Torah. So what Martin is reacting to is sort of the longstanding unspoken assumption that Paul as missionary to the Gentiles represents the Christian mission to the Gentiles. And this is a picture that is given to us in both Galatians and in Acts. Uh, in Galatians 2.7, Paul very much presents himself as the voice of the Gentile mission as opposed to Peter, who is the voice of the Jewish mission. In Galatians 2.7, Paul says, on the contrary, when they, the Peter and his cohort, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Similarly, Acts seeks to portray the unity of the early church by showing Paul, Peter, and James all in concert agreeing that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, and actually gives Peter this vision, the blanket coming down, abrogating the necessity of Torah for reaching Gentiles. So both Paul and Acts seem to depict the Christian mission to the Gentiles as being law-free. And Martin is going to argue that if there was a law-observant mission to the Gentiles, if there was the point of view that Paul seems to be arguing against in Galatians, we wouldn't expect Paul or Luke, the author of Acts, to give us any indication of their existence. We, we wouldn't expect a depiction, or at least a charitable depiction, of this group in 
Luke, or in Paul. So, we need to turn to extra-canonical sources. Um, sort of picking up on a point from Bauer, the New Testament is a collection of documents by the victorious party. That is, by the law-free party, the group that agrees with Paul that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. It is that group that selected the texts out of the earliest period of the church and canonized them. And so it is not a representative sample of the diversity of Christianity in the first century, but a particular selection along a particular theological trajectory. So the question we have to ask ourselves then is, is there such thing as the Gentile mission? For a long time, scholars did talk this way. Uh, Von Harnack sort of set the tone for this, that we, we've always assumed that that Galatians and Acts basically gives us the whole picture, that there was one mission to the Gentiles on behalf of the Christian church, and it was law-free. But what Martin is interested in is, does Galatians actually indicate that this isn't quite the case, that there was a different mission to the Gentiles going on as a part of the Christian movement, and that this movement had a very different view on how Gentiles should respond to Torah. So Martin is going to find independent evidence for the existence of such a group in two works preserved for us in what's called the Pseudo-Clementine literature. So the Pseudo-Clementine literature looks to be, I mean, it's what's called the Pseudo-Clementine Recognitions and the Pseudo-Clementine Homilies. And these are two sort of Greco-Roman novels that have letters appended to the front of them that look like they're integrating a number of earlier Jewish Christian sources into this big story about okay. Clement, the disciple of Peter, and his interactions with the early Christians and heretics and so forth. Anyways, there are two sources, um, the Ascent of James and the Preaching of Peter, which scholars, not Martin, earlier scholars and subsequent work by figures like Stanley Jones have argued go back to the second century and preserve for us evidence of a law-observant group of Christians. So the ascent uh, identifies itself as being more or less indistinguishable from their Jewish brethren, except for their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. The preaching of Peter actually quite explicitly celebrates the the practice of the law even by Christians. It um, exhorts the obser observation of, quote, the law of God, which was made known to us by Moses and which was confirmed to us by our Lord in its everlasting continuance. It's actually quite anti-Paul and uh, treats Paul as sort of an enemy figure for teaching that Gentiles did not have to follow Torah. You might hear echoes of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, by the way, in this note about the everlasting continuance of the law of Moses, but we'll come back to that. Martin's next point is that heated denials, table-thumping negatives, typically reflect realities on the ground. The lady doth protesteth too much, right? So if someone is emphatically saying that Christians should not attend synagogues, thinking of Chrysostom here, or Christians never practice bibliomancy, it's probably a reflection that some Christians do this. So, returning to Paul, Paul seems very worked up in the text of Galatians. It's the only letter that doesn't have this praise of the congregation at the beginning. Throughout it, he seems very angry and has these, like, dark jokes about wishing people would castrate themselves. And he seems to be, throughout the letter, responding to the particular teaching of the opponents. Martin actually says that Paul assumes that his readers would have the opponent's sermons ringing in, ringing in their ears, or would have the opponents, the teachers, present with them as they're reading it. So, Paul is going to be responding to the particular issues raised by these teachers, and we can see this as we read through the text of Galatians. 
So this is where Martin introduces us to the project of mirror reading. And there's two errors you can easily fall into when you're doing mirror reading, which is, as we said at the beginning of the episode, is reconstructing the opponent's position by what Paul is arguing against in the letter. Uh, the first the first mistake that, uh, that, that you can fall into is overly confident mirror reading, where just everything that Paul says you assume is the exact negative is taught by the teachers, and that we can build this very detailed, elaborate, thorough picture of what the opponents are teaching, which is basically fundamentally speculative. The other possible area you can fall into, though, if you're trying to avoid this, is reluctance to see anything that the teachers are saying is reflected in Paul's text, and really being reluctant to make any claims about the teachers. Martin is basically trying to steer a middle course here, you know, allowing ourselves to make some claims about what the teachers are saying based on what Paul is particularly concerned about, but he also really wants to limit it to things that stand out as being particularly unusual. Now we enter into the actual text of Galatians. He divides up what we can reconstruct into things that are specifically attributed to the teachers, so direct mentions of the teachers, and things which are not explicitly attributed to the teachers, but we have good reason otherwise to think that in this case he's responding to their teaching. So let's begin with the direct mentions. The first is, throughout the letter, Paul seems to distinguish between you, Galatians, you plural, and some people or those people or others. And this, Martin suggests, probably reflects that the preachers are outsiders. They're not part of the you. They're not part of the group that Paul helped found. They're not part of the Galatians, but people coming in from the outside. There, there are three terms that Paul particularly uses to describe these teachers. Uh, and one of them is that he says that they are those who are circumcised. So obviously this gives us a pretty good clue to who these outsiders are. They must be Jews if they're circumcised. But the other thing he says about them repeatedly is that they teach this, you know, other gospel or false gospel. Like he keeps, even though he denies that there's another gospel, he keeps referring to what they're teaching as good news or a gospel, which means that the teachers have to be Christians. That's a very Christian term. He doesn't say they're taking you away from the gospel. He doesn't say they're giving you a false teaching or an impotent philosophy like we find in Revelation or Colossians. Rather, he says in Galatians 1 that they are distorting the gospel. This pretty clearly indicates that these are people preaching good news namely good news about Jesus Christ. We also see in chapter three, there's a lot of concern about the Holy Spirit and how Paul says the the Gentiles got, the Galatian church got the Holy Spirit, which seems to indicate that there's some disagreement between Paul and the teachers on how Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit for worship. Paul says that it's by believing what you heard by this immediate response and faith to the gospel message he taught. And it seems that the, what the opponents are teaching is that the Gentiles receive, receive the Spirit by obediently following Torah and accepting accepting Torah. Additionally, the group is described as those who frighten you or those who stir up and agitate you. And Martin connects this with the statement in Galatians 4.17 that they want to shut you out and argues that the law-observant mission is arguing for the exclusivity of membership as part of the children of Abraham on the basis of their teaching. Uh, So the people of God are constituted by whatever they're teaching and not what Paul is teaching, and that probably, you know, given the context of the letter, is circumcision. 
So in addition to these direct references to the teachers, Martin also says we can see some indirect references to the teachers and what they believe uh, through places in the letter where Paul gets really interested in Old Testament texts and concepts and uh, in phrases that he's not terribly interested in in other letters. And one great example of this is interest in Abraham. Uh, Abraham also appears in Romans 4, but for the most part, Paul doesn't really spend a lot of time in his letters explaining how people can become descendants of Abraham or how the blessing of Abraham is experienced by Gentiles. This just isn't really a subject Paul really cares about. Yeah, Paul's treatment of Abraham in Romans 4, Martin points out, is quite different. So let's look at the way that Paul engages with Genesis 15 in Galatians 3. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Paul here Martin points out, is answering a question not posed by the text. Who is it that is a descendant of Abraham? If you go back and read Genesis 15.6, this isn't in there. There isn't a discussion of membership as part of the descendants of Abraham. So he asks the question, where is this concern, this question coming from, if it's not being pulled out of Genesis? And there's two possible answers, of course. This could be part of Paul's own exegetical tradition and teaching that him and the Galatians share since he founded that church, or this could be coming from the preaching of the opponents. And he argues on the basis of Paul's other letters, specifically his summary of the gospel in 1 Thessalonians 1 and in 1 Corinthians 15, that this notion of inclusion in the, in the descendants of Abraham is not part of Paul's ordinary gospel. This is probably being introduced as a response to the teaching of these opponents. And this is actually corroborated if you turn to look at some of these early Jewish Christian documents like the ascent of James, who see the law-observant mission as grounded in Genesis' promise of descendants to Abraham. So uh, the ascent of James isn't formulating its theology by responding to Paul's teaching, but by an interpretation of precisely these passages of Genesis who is the descendants of Abraham. Martin says that he cannot adjudicate between the independence of these people's teaching from Paul and their genetic priority. Is Paul a branch off of this group, or do these two groups grow up side by side or independently? I think actually here, Duke University's own Douglas Campbell may offer some help. He has a great article uh, in NTS 2011, arguing that Galatians 5.11 indicates that Paul originally preached a law-observant mission. He says, Paul asks, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. So I'm not going to rehash all of Campbell's article. I'd, look f I'd suggest you go and read it. That Paul says that he too used to preach or proclaim circumcision, but he has since stopped. So he used to be on the team of his opponents, more or less, but has come away, and this has something to do with persecution. And this would suggest that, in fact, the law-observant mission is an earlier expression of Christianity. Um, and this makes a lot of historical sense. I mean, the conflicts that are happening in Acts and in Galatians wouldn't be a big issue if Jesus had walked around obviously teaching that no one needs to observe the law anymore. These things only make sense if the Christian community that pre-existed Paul wasn't used to this idea um, and didn't have straightforward teachings of Jesus to cite, like Mark 7, that preached the abolition of Torah. Um, and so Paul makes the most sense 
here and elsewhere as coming out of this law-observant Christianity and beginning this law-free mission to the Gentiles. Yeah. A lot of times we call the opponents or the teachers in Galatians, a lot of times we call them Judaizers. Uh, And this is not a really great term because what Judaizing sort of implies is that these are people who are sneaking around behind Paul. And then when Paul plants a church, they bust in and tell the church that they have to follow Torah and be more Jewish. And that's like that that their primary purpose is putting some sort of limitation or additional burden on a pre-existing church. And that's not really a fair description because this is clearly a group that has a completely developed theology and a completely developed sense of its own mission and its own responsibility towards the Gentiles. Like these aren't parasitic hangers on to Paul. These are, this is a group that is as organized and developed as Paul's own missionary activity is. It's also worth noting that Judaizing and Hellenizing are not transitive verbs. Judaizing is to make yourself or to become more Jewish Hellenizing is to become more Hellenized, not to force other people to act Greekly. So Judaizer is a doubly bad word. We could probably do a whole series of episodes on uh, J. Louis Martin, but we really wanted to start here in order to give people a sense of what critical scholarship of Paul looks like and what it means when scholars say that um, Paul's letters are contingent. You know, it's, it's really important to remember from a historical perspective, Paul's not writing these treatises that are meant to be read for spiritual edification, just stuck out of time and places. These are letters that Paul writes to specific churches in response to specific events. In order to understand these letters, we have to know what Paul's actually writing to and what he's writing about. And unfortunately, it's not always clear. So Martin gives us a good way for how we as scholars could start to reconstruct what is happening on the grounds in these churches and what this can reveal, not just about Paul and his letters, but about early Christianity in general. You sometimes see Martin being cited in people who are critical of mirror reading as being too speculative and historical critical hubris. But it's worth noting what sets J. Lloyd Martin apart from really speculative, ungrounded mirror readings is that he's not just saying that Paul says X, therefore his opponents must have said not X. Rather, Martin is arguing that Paul said X, and we can find independent evidence of people who taught not X. And certain parts of Paul's defendants of X don't make any sense unless he's responding to certain implications from a not X position. It's likely, therefore, according to Martin, that Paul's opponents probably taught not X. So it's a much more sophisticated, controlled version of mirror reading. It's not he said this, so she must have said that. He is introducing methodological controls, and he's, he's a really careful scholar, and this is a really careful study, yeah. that simply waving your hand at source-critical hubris doesn't, isn't really a fair treatment of this sort of approach to the texts. Yeah. This is a really great article. You can learn a lot from reading it, and you really should read it yourselves. Yep. This probably won't be the last time we talk about J.L. Martin, but this covers us for today, yep. I think. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I love this article. Like so, awesome. So, See you next weekend. Leave us a review. It's easy. Open your podcast app, find our show, scroll down, hit five stars, more people will find us. Leave us a positive review, though. Yeah, you can only leave five-star reviews. You can find more about us on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, review, or email us at newtestamentreview at gmail.com. Thanks to Mitch and Luke and all the guys from Carnegie for letting us use their song in the intro and outro music of the podcast. You should check them out 